You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about new treatments the wealthy are using to try and stay young forever, the cultural and social evolution of the word please, and how the snap-fit mechanism used in things like Lego bricks is being updated for even bigger projects. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Since the beginning of time, humans have been searching for the fountain of youth. Turns out we're actually getting closer and there are now so many ways to look young forever. How many ways to stay young and beautiful could there be? We've got diet, exercise, apparently some treatments made out of young people's blood. How far can that list go? Can't get any longer, right? I mean, you would think so. And yet I am here today with an article by Insider who spoke with experts about the current trend we see, especially in the wealthy, doing something to stay young forever. Some of the methods make a lot of sense and could actually make everybody's lives a little better and others not so much. Like what? Well, let me start by telling you about cold exposure therapy. It's exactly what it sounds like. Expose your body to extremely cold temperatures for a short amount of time, like taking a really cold bath or doing cryotherapy, which is when you spend a few minutes in a chamber with freezing temperatures. There's a growing amount of research that suggests that cold exposure could work wonders for your physical and mental health because the cold triggers the production of endorphins in your brain like epinephrine and dopamine, which could reduce regular inflammation in your body, thus limiting your risk for chronic illness. Oh, that sounds cold. It also sounds interesting Uh and maybe dangerous. Yeah, that's one of the potential downfalls of cold exposure therapy. Like any therapy, you should really consult your doctor before trying it, because otherwise, if you just dive into a cold pool, you're putting yourself at risk for frostbite, hypothermia, and maybe even a heart attack. Worse, researchers haven't really come to an agreement yet on what the perfect amount of time is for cold exposure or even the temperature. Some researchers say 50 degree water, some say 70, others say 59. I mean, it's all over the place. But the most unfortunate part about cold exposure therapy is there's no actual evidence it can make you younger, only that it can soothe a sore muscle. Hmm. Okay, so why do people think it makes you stay young? Anecdotal evidence. A few doctors at Cedars-Sinai were asked why people associate cold exposure with youth, and they cited stories they'd heard from older 80-something men who took a swim every single morning, saying that the cold water is what kept them feeling young. The doctors don't think that's the case, though, and more likely it was the daily physical activity. (laughs) All right, so playing devil's advocate, what about some methods that don't require you to nearly freeze to death or even have to be physical. Okay, there are a few of those too with their own pros and cons, but one more promising than the others is ashwagandha. It's an herb that's been used as a holistic treatment in India. It's what's considered an adaptogen, which is a natural substance that can help the body calm down during a stressful event. But it can also soothe arthritis and even boost your brain strength. Remember how we talked recently about cortisol, our body's natural stress hormone? Ashwagandha can even reduce cortisol. Awesome, but I'm not hearing anything about anti-aging there. Okay, but that's because it's a recent development. New studies from back in 2020 have found that ashwagandha might actually be able to help telomeres keep their length. Telomeres, if you don't know, are the proteins at the end of our chromosomes. 
as we get older, telomeres get shorter. Now, we don't know why for sure, but it is theorized that if we keep our telomeres from shortening, we could slow down cell aging and the degeneration of our bodies. Yeah, I think we've talked about telomeres before. There's the experiment in Israel where scientists successfully reversed the aging process for a few cells by lengthening the telomeres. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't clear if it actually reversed or stopped aging, just the aging of the cells. So that was maybe a bust. Were there other methods that did have evidence of keeping people young? I mean, a few to varying degrees. Uh, One of the most promising methods is known as red light therapy, which shines red LED lights all over your body. Turns out if you expose your body to red light from anywhere between 5 and 20 minutes at a time, you'll increase your body's production of adenosine triphosphate by a pretty substantial amount. Right. Yeah. Uh, The adenosine triphosphate. Totally. (laughs) It's okay. I didn't know what it was either. (laughs) So it turns out it's a compound that provides and stores energy for each of our cells. What does an excess of adenosine triphosphate mean? We don't actually know for sure, but there is some evidence that it means our bodies become better at repairing themselves, uh, specifically our skin. Red light therapy is linked with a reduction of acne, a reversal of hair loss, faster wound healing, and sun damage. These are all hallmarks of what could be considered successful anti-aging techniques. This one sounds pretty great, honestly. What's wrong with this method? I mean, just that we don't know enough. The medical consensus is that red light therapy is quote-unquote promising, but the benefits are infrequent enough that we're not sure just how effective it is. We know that red light isn't toxic or cancer-causing like ultraviolet sunlight, but if you use red light therapy too often, you could actually permanently damage your skin or even your eyes. Still, with more research, this could be our second most promising anti-aging solution. Second most? What's the most most promising? Rapamycin, which researchers are calling a possible fountain of youth pill. It's an immunosuppressive drug we currently use to treat a few cancers or during kidney transplants to help a patient's body accept the new kidney. But the real fountain of youth arrives from the pill's ability to slow down the growth and reproduction of cells, meaning it could stop inflammation that gets worse as we get older, which could prevent diseases that get worse with age like cancer or Alzheimer's, which means it could keep those cells young and healthy forever. Okay. That sounds great. What is the catch with this treatment? The only catch here is we haven't figured out a correct way to use it for humans yet. We already have evidence that it can slow down the aging process for flies and mice, but right now we only have evidence that it can boost a human's immune system. That hasn't stopped people from taking off-label non-prescribed rapamycin due to its status as a fountain of youth drug, but unfortunately we don't have much in the way of research on that yet. Mm, sounds to me like we don't actually have any fountain of youth treatments after all. I mean, all of these examples are pretty promising. We just need a bit more research to commit to any single one of them. And honestly, in moderation, none of them will hurt you. For the time being, it's like you said when we talked about telomeres before. If you want to stay young forever, you you can't. But you can stay healthy with a proper diet and good old-fashioned exercise. Whether any of these things will make you feel better, well, That's kind of up to you. Quick question. Which statement is more polite? Could you get the door for me? Or could you please get the door for me? (laughs) Okay, I mean, I feel like the tone of your voice is doing a lot of the heavy lifting there, but I mean, probably the first one. I, I know the word please is supposed to be polite, but in that context, 
You just kind of sound rude and really snarky. You're not alone in thinking that either. A new study out of The Atlantic looked into the history of the word please and discovered that what once was a polite turn of phrase has actually evolved, socially speaking, into a bit of a double-edged sword. It still exists as a word that we use when we try to be polite, but it's so commonly used to imply exasperation that even seeing the word can make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, okay, come to think of it, the word please does sometimes make me feel kind of funny. It's usually used in the middle of a demand of some kind. Like, one of my roommates could be like, could you please turn down that hosier record? It's because they think my music's too loud and they're mad about it. But it's also the magic word, right? We use that phrase to teach kids that please is a way to be polite, even if that's not always the case. Exactly. And it wasn't always this way. The first record we have of the word please in English language comes from back in the 1300s when a four-word phrase was translated from French, if it please you. In this context, it's meant to be a sort of humble request. For example, in a 15th century English epic called Le Mort d'Arthur, a character says, and if it please you, that I may be made knight, as a request to the king to become a knight. This phrase in French still implies humbleness and is even used today in France. But after the 1300s, it took a bit of a turn in the English-speaking world. How did four words, if it please you, turn into one, like, adverb or verb? It started around the 16th century when four words became three. All references to the phrase around it removed it and became if you please. Same meaning, but shorter to say. Then around 1659, another word disappeared. Please you to have a little patience is a turn of phrase James Shirley used in his play Honoria and Mammon. But much like the Highlander, there can be only one. <laughs> in 1771, the first recorded use of please on its own was used in a letter by a London merchant. The study out of the Atlantic calls this first example of please being used with graceless urgency, much less polite than before, while also signifying that something needed to happen now. And that was it? Was there any reason for it? Not that we know of, but like most other evolutions in language, it was probably due to it being efficient to say certain things in fewer words. It's a social evolution. Think about how when I say the word laser, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A bright beam of light, maybe deadly, maybe not, but it's concentrated in one direction. When you write the word, it's all in lowercase because it's just considered a word now. But it originated as an acronym for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. Over time, laser became such a common way to describe this sort of phenomenon that it just became a full-on word. And the same thing happened with If It Please You and Please. Well, what happened to make please feel so rude in 2023? A few centuries of further social evolution. The study from The Atlantic cites a psychologist named Steven Pinker who researched how please has been used across history in works of fiction. From 1860 to 2012, people used it more and more, probably due to a trend in fiction writers creating more works in an informal way, basically to get polite language across in less words. But Pinker thinks writers may have gone too far with the informality over time. Okay, what do you mean? Around 2012, there seemed to be a shift in fiction and also the social consciousness on the use of the word please. Suddenly, the word might read as a character being either rude or too fawning and gushy. Please became a word that required the correct context. A little kid asking, may I have more ice cream, please, 
Yeah, that's benign. But a police officer saying, license and registration, please, sounds less like a plea and more like a demand, especially to younger people. Well, okay, wait, what's different for younger people? Because please is also the magic word, right? We use that phrase to teach kids that please is a way to be polite, even if that's not always the case. There's not really any data on this, but even renowned modern thinkers like Noam Chomsky believe that the word please has a certain snark to it when it comes out of a young person's mouth. He believes it implies they've been told something more than enough times. For example, if you ask a young person something about themselves that isn't true and they respond with please, that can showcase a number of things. Anger, passive aggression, desperation, or even more literary concepts like irony. What it doesn't display is what it's intended to, which is politeness. And I think a lot of that may have to do with how we teach kids early that please is the polite phrase. Well, the word please, born sometime in 1300, died 2023 on Curiosity Daily. Uh, If please is so rude, what do we say now? For starters, I want to make it clear that please isn't dead. Again, it can be used in a number of different contexts appropriately. But if you want to maintain a polite tone, one example you could use is to ask, would you mind instead? Much like if it please you, it leaves the request open-ended, feeling less like a demand and more like a genuine question. No matter what, English, like all other languages, is alive and ever-evolving. Trying to read anything in Old English feels like you're trying to translate another language because it basically is. Please may be on its way out as an acceptable turn of phrase for the plight, but it wouldn't be the first time something like this happened, and it won't be the last. Oh, please. You know what one of my favorite sounds is? I know this sounds kind of weird, but that sound when you place the top of a lid on a Tupperware bowl and it just sort of like (laughs) snaps into place perfectly? It's a perfect example of what's considered a snap fit mechanism that you'll find in everything from Ziploc bags to IKEA furniture. But have you ever wondered how that mechanism even works? I've always assumed that it's a combination of suction and objects with narrow edges being pushed into narrow spaces. But come to think of it, I guess that wouldn't really explain how you can take a snap fit apart. That's basically where physicist Hirofumi Wada was coming from when he noticed all sorts of snap fit mechanisms at his home in Japan. His wife and kids used everything from electronic toys with snap fit battery covers to freezer bags in the kitchen, and he needed to know how something that seemed so simple could be used for so many things. So he wanted to experiment. And one day, his student Kisuke Yoshida was messing around with some materials in a lab setting and found the perfect combination of items to put the SnapFit experiment to the test. Was it a brand new set of IKEA furniture? No, no. This was a very basic rigid plastic cylinder. (laughs) The student used the cylinder with a thin piece of plastic that had been doused in hot water for long enough that it would bend quite easily when they pushed the cylinder into the plastic. Their goal, at first, was just to create their own snap-fit mechanism, so they kept rearranging the plastic sheet, folding it or rolling it up, and then pushing the cylinder into it. That sounds less like an experiment and more like just two scientists playing with a few pieces of plastic. (laughs) Okay, but remember, in the infamous words of Adam Savage from Mythbusters, the only difference between screwing around in science is writing it down. (laughs) Wada said the goal was to keep the experiment simple because they wanted to study a simplified system in detail. Basically, if they could learn how the simplest snaps work, somebody could maybe develop better industrial variants later on. Here's what I'm curious about, though. They managed to poke a cylinder through a plastic sheet. 
How does that represent a snap fit? Um, let me put it another way. Snap fits are, by their very nature, asymmetrical. They're easy to put together and a bit harder to take apart. Whenever this kind of thing is being made, the goal is to make it so you can push the lock mechanism into place and make it just a little harder to separate without making it impossible to remove, of course. What Wada and Yoshida's work does is show that the best snap fits depend entirely on how an object's shape interacts with its ability to change shape and then mold back into place. In short, their work with snap fits seems simple, but according to them, it is, and I quote, an exquisite combination of geometry, elasticity, and friction that could lead to a real revolution in how similar designs are made in the future. Well, I'm going to have to agree with them. It's really cool that they were able to make something so complicated seem so easy. What kind of revolution is it that they're referring to? Think about anything that relies on glue or plastic that, if recycled or disposed of, would cause harm to the environment. For an example, an apartment building. The very foundation of how most buildings are made, probably even the building I'm in right now. By innovating different kinds of snap bit mechanisms, especially the kind that don't come apart so easily, you'd eliminate the need for glue, cement, or any other adhesives. What you just described is a giant Lego house. And yeah, that's a future I want to be part of. Yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, just imagine living in a nice yet properly insulated Lego home with a nice Lego door and your Lego robot. And if you're thinking, wait, why would I have a Lego robot? It's because another possible innovation in the snap fit can tie itself into robotics. With a new and improved snap fit, you could make a robot that doesn't just grab an item. You can make a robot that can just snap onto an item, just so long as the object also has a snapping mechanism, of course. I was pretty obsessed with Lego as a kid. Why is this the first time I'm hearing about how my life could potentially be Lego-fied? <laughs> There's this mathematician at Oxford in the UK named Dominic Vela, who didn't help Wado with the study, but considers himself a huge fan of Wado's work and the concept of snap-fit mechanics. Vela told Inside Science that there isn't really an acceptable reason for why nobody's looked into the science of snap fits before. He has a theory that it's because the snap fit worked and nobody ever thought to question it. Wait, you're telling me that scientists, people who are naturally curious and are supposed to question everything, did not question the snap fit? Nate, did you question the snap fit? Well, mm, okay. See? <laughs> it's something society at large has maybe taken a bit for granted, but because of Wada and Yoshida, we finally have a few answers as to how and why this material works. So the next time you're packing your lunch into a secure piece of Tupperware, just remember to say thanks to these guys, because without the snap fit mechanism, your lunch would just spill all over the place. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. In recent years, Silicon Valley billionaires have become obsessed with finding the fountain of youth, the one treatment that will keep a person young and beautiful forever. The website Insider recently gathered together a number of the most promising treatments being used by the wealthy and provided pros and cons to each, from fasting to cold exposure therapy and everything in between. Right now, the most promising solution is the most old-fashioned, a proper diet and healthy exercise. Could you please explain to me why the word please is still in use? Over time, the word please has evolved from a polite request into a source of snark and derision for younger generations, and since 2012, it's only gotten worse. This is due to the social evolution of language in general, and we might actually be seeing please as it's on its way out of the English language. How does the snap fit mechanism even work? 
A new study out of Japan has figured out that the snap fit is just a combination of geometry, elasticity, and friction that makes objects easy to stick together but harder to take apart. This mechanism is easily accessible but less well understood, and with more studying, we could find ourselves in a world where this sort of thing could revolutionize other mechanical areas, including housing. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery Executive Producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Wheelhouse DNA Executive Producer is Cassie Berman. This show is hosted by Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our producer is Kiara Noni, and our associate producer is Kimaya Floyd. Writing is done by Jed Bookout and Sam Osterhout. Our researcher is Marla Friedson. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Nate Bonham. And I'm Callie Gade. We'll see you next week.